How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. People concerned about climate disruption are changing their personal habits, switching to fuel-efficient cars, modifying their diet, becoming carbon-smart shoppers. But do individual actions having any meaningful impact on the global systems that drive severe weather? Some argue that buying a Prius or other well-intentioned actions may actually be counterproductive and result in a net increase in one's personal carbon footprint. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the role of individual habits in the war on carbon with our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to have with us three perspectives on the importance of people as consumers and also as agents of change inside corporations and government. Glenn Lowe is a principal with Blue Sky, where he's a sustainability consultant to Walmart and other corporations. Chris Jones is co-chair of the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference and a researcher with the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley. And Granat Wagner is author of But Will the Planet Notice? How Smart Economics Can Save the World. He's also a Ph.D. economist with the Environmental Defense Fund in New York. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, gentlemen, thank you for coming. Uh, let's talk first about plastic bags, because plastic bags are such an icon for so many things, environmental and, and economics. And, uh, Granat, you start your book and you talk about plastic, paper or plastic, and you say that, uh, plastic bags are shorthand for cleanliness and progress. So let's, I'd like to get all of us to talk about plastic bags and the approach to tackle that problem through uh, shame and name through uh, bans and also through pricing. So, Bruno? Well, plastic bags is sort of one of this, these iconic environmental issues, right? We've been banging our heads against the wall forever trying to get rid of them. Um, and nothing really seemed to work, right? Whole Foods keeps giving us 10 cents to bring our canvas bag, and yes, I bring my canvas bag, but then I walk into the pharmacy and sometimes mea culpa, choose the plastic bag or take the plastic bag. Um, now, what did work? What has worked? Um, 2001, Ireland, the country, um, passed a 15 euro cent plastic tax and plastic bag use decreased 90%, 9-0, a billion bags a year, within a year. Washington, 2010, um, a couple years ago, three years ago by now, um, passed a five-cent disposable bag tax, paper and plastic, and disposable bag use decreased by 80% within a year. It's these tiny, tiny incentives that, frankly, right, you don't notice. On a $100 weekly grocery purchase, 10 cents, you don't notice. Um, and still, they made a huge difference. Right? So the naming and shaming business, the usual sort of, quote-unquote, old-school environmentalist approach simply didn't work until we passed this kind of policy, the tiny, tiny fees that are making a huge difference. 
Chris Jones, you're nodding your head. Do you think that's right in terms of that, that prices are the really important drivers in shaping personal behavioral change? Well, you know, I think what's important about this example, really it wasn't the price, as, as Granat mentioned. It was really just the signal, just the idea that this is the new norm. And uh, even that very, very tiny price signal was enough uh, to make that shift. So I think that was a, a very smart and very effective uh, policy uh, to do this, uh, you know, countrywide. But we also see this, um, you know, at my own local supermarket in the Davis Food Co-op. You know, they've been able to institute uh, the same policy, and it just completely changed uh, the way that people think about this. This is now what is expected uh, behavior. So it's not the price. It's just the the shift in what is expected behavior that's important. But that shift in expected behavior, uh, he mentioned uh, Whole Foods before, paper, plastic, you, you know, you look feel like you're you're a sinner if you're walking out of Whole Foods or any other place with a plastic bag. Yeah. That that didn't do it. it. The price mattered, right? And when people now in San Francisco say, would you like to buy a plastic a bag? We're like, oh, no, I don't want to buy a bag. No, <laughs> yeah. right? So, well, it's the default option. Yeah. That's really important. Okay. This is one thing that we have learned is just make that um, what is expected of everybody. People are willing, in many cases, to uh, even pay taxes so long as other people, everybody does it, or to go a little bit extra uh, on, on on this issue, for example, as long as everybody does it. So... Um, it was effective because of that reason, I think. And Glenn Lowe, you've done research into cor- uh, consumer product goods and, and how the price sensitivity that consumers have and what they're willing to pay. So tell us, you know, apply that to plastic bags. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite interesting because behavior change is tricky business, right? And I'll just actually build on something that Chris was just mentioning, which is if you think about behavior change, if you think about the habits that we have, these default options are actually quite powerful. Ideally, most people who, who study this emerging science of habits, they say about 45% of what we do every day is embedded habits. There's no conscious decision-making. And so in the corporate world, it's all about creating just enough new behavior, new incentive disruption and critical thinking patterns to have someone think again. It may not actually be material. 15 cents or 10 cents may not be material, but it's enough of a break in the current Habits, the current practices that you deploy, that it actually creates a new behavior. And so corporations these days are looking at places where they can actually find uh, points of disruption in a typical behavior. And so it's true for a plastics bag. It's, it's very true actually for a number of corporations are targeting. Uh, another very disruptive moment is when parents have kids. And so the ability That's to... definitely disruptive. Yes, yes, very disruptive. Yeah. And so th- there was a very great article uh, in the New York Times that talked about Target and its practice of what they called a pregnancy prediction algorithm. And they were trying to get families, mothers in particular, or mothers-to-be, who are in the second trimester, because if you, get, if you got them right at the right trimester, you can disrupt all their habits and have them shop everything at Target. <laughs> And, okay, I just want to think about that for a minute. Okay. Yes, um, yes, yes. And does that mean, are they willing to then buy cleaner and greener products because they're thinking about a child they're bringing into the world? Is that sort of, you know, to connect what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And are they willing to pay more for that? Yes, well, let, let's be very candid. The incentive of Target is to drive shopping basket, right? Average shopping size. But absolutely, if you look at moms, moms-to-be, they, they care with this aura of emanating out from the body. So what they put in the body, priority one. What they put on their body, priority two. 
what they put in their family, in their home, priority three. And then you extend concentric circles out to community, uh, larger. That's what they care about. And so if you can get them in just the spot where you have this heightened sensitivity of the kinds of products you put on your baby, for example, it is an inflection point in behavior, and it's disruptive. And, Gernot, is that meaningful in any way? Because you're here kind of representing the view that, that policy is what matters. Individual uh, action doesn't really uh, have an impact on, we're talking about ultimately carbon and, and climate disruption. So if, if a expectant mom buys something that's easier on her health and easier on the environment, doesn't that create a market? Doesn't that create some some uh, market signals that that's, that that's a good thing to do and that might have some impact? Sure, right? So I have a 23-month-old at home now. So, yes, 23 months ago, our life changed quite a bit, right? And we do buy certain products now that we wouldn't have bought before, right? diapers being an obvious example, but obviously sort of certain other things where you now choose the organic version where you wouldn't have chosen the organic one before. But I think the main point, building on um, Glenn's point, is um, Target, Walmart, American Airlines, right? they're incredibly smart at getting us to frankly buy more stuff because they use these behavioral nudges to get us to move in the direction that they want us to go. The trick is to use these exact kind of behavioral nudges, pricing mechanisms, incentives on the policy level to move everyone in the right direction. Right? So just quick example this morning, right? So I came in from New York this morning, right? American Airlines gives you the option to offset your emissions. Right? First, you pay for your ticket. They make sure that happens. And then they give you the option to spend 20 bucks extra to offset your emissions. Right? And they don't do that to make you feel bad about flying. They want to make you feel good about flying and presumably do more of it. Right? Now, the trick is to use these exact same type of nudges, incentive mechanisms, behavioral options, default mechanisms, to use at the policy level to then, for example, change overall flying behavior and, for example, well, make flights, make everyone who buys a plane ticket um, pay for the full pollution cost that that flight will have cost. So let's talk about the impact of offsets. Offsets is a whole world unto itself, but just the mere fact that you can address your conscience and feel okay, thank you for coming from New York today, by the way, uh, without any guilt, but does that offset mean that, well, I can fly any time and I don't have to worry about it because I'm addressing the carbon problem with my offsets, therefore we're free to go? Well, up to a point, so, right, so I, well, I... I brought my own water bottle just to make a point, I guess, even though there is one here already. But right, so I try to do all the right things. I don't have a driver's license. Right? I mean, that's going to extremes to a point. Right? I've never driven in my life. Well, I fly quite a bit. Um, now, right, how does this balance? Well, I'd like to think that right, flying, in my, in my case, for business, for right, the environmental cause, is a good thing overall, um, especially if I offset my emissions. But... At the end of the day, uh, yeah, right, I fly more because I have offsets available that make me feel good about flying, right? Why would anyone go on an eco-vacation to Costa Rica? Right? Well, yes, because they recycle their towels there, but right, the only way you can really justify it to yourself is because you spend the 20 bucks extra to offset your emissions. Glenn Lowe, there's something called the single action bias, where people take take an action, buy a Prius, and they th- somehow think they have a license that uh, <laughs> to do other sorts of things. Yeah. Or if you eat your vegetables, you can have that nice, uh, you know, ice cream sundae, right? <laughs> I do that, yes. 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's it's one of the tricks of behavior change because when when human beings process what they want to go do, the the actions they want to take, there's there's an exposure to a risk like climate change, and they want to do something about it. There is an action bias, but the unfortunate reality is it's often a single action. It may not even be sufficient. It might even be insignificant. But there there seems to be wired in our heads an ability to rationalize that I've done just enough. And so he, here's a simple example. There was an experiment done a couple years ago, a psychology experiment, where they had two two groups. One group who bought some green product online, and then another group who just looked at a green product but didn't actually buy. And then they they told this ex- the people in the experiment of, well, this is unrelated, but now we're going to have you play this game where it's all about sharing. It's all about money. And actually, this is the, the unbelievable thing, that people who bought the green product shared less. The people who didn't buy the green product were happy to share. And so you, you, you get this single action advice because, frankly, I've done enough for the planet. I'm actually now going to indulge. Soft global warming for the day, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's done. Chris Jones? <laughs> well, you know, the way uh, signal action bias works, we think, is that uh, through cognitive dissonance, that um, what's happening is that you have a conception about yourself and your actions are, are not in line with your con- self-concept. And so that creates this cognitive dissonance. So what do you do? You want to do the quickest thing you can to, uh, you know, alleviate that problem and say that you're, you're you know, kind of, are a good person and move on to the next thing. Uh, well, you know, uh, that does uh, happen to some extent, but it only gets you so far. Uh, it depends on how much dissonance you've really created. And if you're, you know, aware of the issue at all, um, just, you know, uh, you know, get, taking your groceries bag to the store isn't going to get you very far. So there's a, a countervailing um, uh, theory that is uh, the uh, foot-in-the-door technique. And this has been actually shown empirically uh, um, hundreds of studies. And this is how you kind of counteract single action bias. And, and the way this works is that once you have taken one action, something really almost magical happens. It changes the way that you think about yourself and your own identity. Whereas before, you were a person who didn't care about energy efficiency. Hey, now I, I, I do care about energy efficiency because I put in this compact light bulb. And you're much more likely... Uh, to take an additional action uh, in the future. And there's been many really ve- very compelling uh, uh, cases of this. Talk about the lawn sign case. Well, this is one of my, my favorite examples, and, and Robert Cialdini and many other people use this, this, this one. Um, so this goes back to 1966. And, in fact, we've known about um, the foot in the door for, for decades even before that. And what some clever researchers at Stanford uh, did is they uh, went to two different neighborhoods. Just heard a Cal guy say that? That was pretty yeah, interesting. Yeah, they're okay. very... <laughs> We collaborate sometimes. With, Good. Uh, this, we'll, give them, we'll give them a break on this one. Uh, so they went to these different neighborhoods where traffic was a problem, and they knew that people cared about uh, traffic safety in those neighborhoods. And what they did was they asked um, one in the control, would you be willing to put this huge billboard on your front lawn asking people to drive safely? It was this ugly thing. It covered up their entire house, basically. You couldn't see it. It was like painted, looked like by school children, you know, on this billboard. Would you be willing to put this, this on your front lawn? Part of the story, actually, is that 17% of the people did agree to put this horrible thing on their front lawn, surprisingly. But that's not the main story here. So what did they do in the treatment group? They went to another neighborhood. And before they asked about the billboard, they said, 
would you be willing to put this three-inch square sticker in your car window that said, would you be willing, uh, you know, please drive safely? Of course, everybody did it, you know. Uh, and then they went back to that same uh, group a month later, and they said, oh, well, thank you very much for, for you. You obviously care about this issue. Would you be willing to put this billboard in your front lawn that said, please drive safely? 76% of the people agreed uh, to, to do this really pretty out, outrageous, seemingly, uh, action, just because it they had not only identified with themselves with this issue, but they'd also publicly uh, identified with this issue. And they saw their peer group, their neighbors do it too, so there's that That's, social validation of I'm not going to be the only freak with the, yeah, okay. Right. I, I ended up putting a sign in my front lawn just a couple of weeks ago because first they asked me to sign a petition and they said, oh, well, by the way, would you be willing to put this sign in your front front lawn? And, okay, well, it works. I mean, we use this all the time. Get, uh, marketers use this all the time. Get your foot in the door with one thing and then a bigger thing later. Okay, so if someone changes their light bulbs, then maybe they're going to change their diet, buy a plug-in car, put solar panels, that sort of thing. Is, is that working? Do we know that that's working? Well, look, I, I think uh, if you look at people who have gone from uh, small actions uh, to large actions or from individual action to uh, collective action, it's always going to start uh, with something small. We don't know the extent to which that s- small actions will lead to to larger actions. And isn't there's a vigorous debate about whether an individual action or, or is a step to further civic engagement if changing your light bulbs to CFLs or LEDs leads to voting for green politicians or leads to writing letters to your members of Congress or leads to other types of action. Do we do we know that? I mean, there seems to be quite a debate about this on-ramp or whether it's a dead end. You know, I, I'd love to see the, the good uh, study that, that shows uh, under what conditions uh, that, um, uh, you know, we can make that happen more frequently. Um, you know, it, there's many factors that um, uh, go into this equation. The way I think about it, though, is um, for those of us who are engaged in collective action, uh, would we have been able to be engaged in collect- collective action if we hadn't taken those first steps? And, Gernot, let's ask you, you, know, the, you talk about policy, but doesn't policy require people who have taken these steps to, to be supported for politicians to do something like the plast tax in Ireland or, or something else doesn't sort of, uh, in some way, the more Prius is on the road or the more people concerned about their energy, doesn't that make it safer for politicians to do uh, energy smart policy? Absolutely. Well, I mean, California is a terrific example of this. California has led the nation forever since the 70s, at least, when it comes to environmental behavior. And, well, by now, California is the one state with the most comprehensive cap-and-trade system in the country. Um, So clearly, there are steps that lead to policy action. And, frankly, if me being vegetarian and me recycling and me offsetting my emissions leads to that, right? sign me up, absolutely. Now, what I'm deathly afraid of is that there is just enough substitutability, not to use too technical a term here, between individual action and collective action, essentially the single action bias that Glenn had identified, that would prevent us from taking these steps quite in the, in sort of the, uh, at the rate that we would need in order to get to collective action. So just one quick example of this, maybe. Um, biking in New York City. 
Right? Mayor Bloomberg put in 300 miles of bike paths in the last five or six years of his tenure. 300 miles. You can go up and down Fifth Avenue a couple times to get to 300 miles. Now, it wasn't that there was sort of suddenly this collective uproar and people demanded bike paths. It's not because it benefits him, right? He needs another helipad. Um, so it's, it was certainly sort of this benevolent social planner, in a sense, right? who on the one hand banned smoking, on the other is banning large soda uh, drinks, and is putting in 300 miles of bike paths um, to lead, essentially, to right, presumably a model that's much closer to Copenhagen than, than Los Angeles, um, or than New York, how it is right now, where people actually can safely bike to work. Right? I used to bike to work till 23 months ago, when the decision was between right, taking out a bigger life insurance or, or not biking to work when my kid was born. Um, so now with the bike paths, it's actually, once again, safe, and not to use too an economist term, cheap to bike, right? In every sense of the word. It is cheaper to bike because I need less life insurance to be able to make it to work safely any given day. This is the kind of policy change where I would say clearly, right, it's it's a race between individual action, call it, um, demanding, um, sort of bottom-up demand for policy, and then a benevolent social planner coming in and instituting the policy. Um, but the end result has to be the policy. And if there's any kind of substitution between the two, I'd much rather go for the, the policy action than for getting yet another New Yorker to bike to work. If you're just joining us, Gernot Wagner is author of But Will the Planet Notice? Uh, uh, how Economists Can Save the World. Other guests today at Climate One is Chris Jones from UC Berkeley and Glenn Lowe, a principal at Blue Sky. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Glenn Lowe, let's get you to talk about individuals inside corporations because an individual who somehow starts on this path we've been talking about, starting with light bulbs or whatever it is, uh, they could have an impact in their personal life, but if they're an influential person in a corporation, they control uh, the rules of that organization. They might control purchasing. Uh, they have a lot more leverage and power than uh, just a, a regular old person. So talk about the leverage that uh, corporate people can have. Yeah, let me give you a very tangible example. Who would you rather affect and try and induce behavior change, whether single action or multiple action? Would you rather affect the 200 million people who shop at Walmart every week, or would you rather affect the 25 people who are SVP, EVP level people at Walmart who buy all the goods that are on the store shelves? So the customers or the corporate yes. officers? Okay. Yes, okay. yes. Who, who would you try and induce behavior change? And, and that's the whole philosophy behind a lot of uh, emerging efforts, both in the consulting sector, but also in the NGO and nonprofit and foundation mm-hmm. sector, where they're really focused on a handful of key decision makers. Because for every system that's out there, whether it's an extended value chain or whether it's an individual corporation, there are some decisions that matter more than others, right? Check our own experience, our decision to where we go to school, where we buy our home. Where There are more material decisions than others. And if you can isolate those decisions and target the corporations who can have undue influence, that that is where you can get systemic change with a handful of uh, people. 
So then there's, say there's uh, this group of 25 people, who's going to be the first one who, to sort of say, well, in Walmart's case, it came from the CEO down, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, Chris Jones would say, we have a small group of people. How is a norm going to be established in that group where it's going to be safe or cool to say, no, wait, we're going to change this process. We're not going to buy products from that company or we're not going to use this mm-hmm. dangerous material, that sort of thing. Well, I think, you know, you've uh, addressed, you know, who is the actor, um, you know, if you are EDF or Blue Cut Sky Consulting, you know, go and, and uh, address Walmart and, you know, uh, public policy. But if you are a group of individuals, w- you may not feel like you have much influence over the decisions of, of sure. government. So, right. so it's really important to work within your own spheres of influence. And that might be your neighbors or your family or your friends, your colleagues at work. Maybe you are in a position of power at work. So fantastic. Uh, work within your community, work as a voter. It's very important um, to engage in where you feel like you make the strongest uh, impact. And that's what people are doing. Uh, and, you know, so the idea that, you know, our individual action uh, doesn't, doesn't matter or doesn't, um, you know, have, a, have an impact, um, you know, I have a lot to say on that. I, be, I believe that it, it absolutely does. Uh, you know, there are, uh, millions of people who are already buying hybrid vehicles and putting solar on their roof and taking, uh, you know, half of Californians have been shown to not only care about this issue, but are taking ish, uh, action well above and beyond uh, just what, you know, would be smart economics to do. So we are making really important contributions collectively with everybody working in where they feel like they have the most influence. And we can do that in our own personal life, but you're, if you're a purchasing executive at Walmart, Glen Lowe, you're not going to be able to do anything that's uneconomic, that's for sure. Uh, so how does that start in that group of 25 influential people? How, how does, give us a little peek inside in terms of how they move the, the bar forward and how new norms get established so they can actually move the bar? Yeah, the, it, the, the simplest answer is to, uh, piggyback on existing norms. And so in this example with Walmart, but really it's true for any corporation, that there are there are unique business models that are inherent. There's a unique culture that's inherent. And in Walmart, it was all about everyday low cost. It was save money so people can live better. And ultimately, if you actually take cost out of the system, whether it's packaging, for example, that actually saves both Walmart and it saves consumers. Mm-hmm. And so if you can lower the price on a particular good, that's actually good for everyone involved. And so if you can tap into the, the what some people call the normative behavior, the culture that's consistent with that organization, you can actually have change happen pretty quickly. But frankly, it only fits for certain corporations. There are some corporations out there that the, the behavior change necessary to produce the, the kind of scale impacts we need are very, very difficult. And so I'll just name an example. Seven of, the, seven of the largest ten corporations on the planet are in oil and gas. And you could argue that their business model is uniquely unsuited to sustainability. <laughs> and so, now, now it's more complicated than that, of course, but there, there is a art to try and convince executives whose short-termism, their, their approach to, do my stakeholders care? Do my shareholders care? No, usually not, because it's not in the balance sheet or financial statements. Do my customers care? Well, a lot of times customers don't care. At least they're not shopping with their dollars and their feet as well as we would like. Um, they'll also ask, do my employees care? And sometimes, again, the answer is no. 
And so what you have are people who are corporate citizens who have fiduciary responsibility to all these stakeholders. And unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't fit the business model. And so that's the art. It's finding the right corporations that can have undue influence. But it fits with their business model as well. Could I, you want to add, into, add to that in terms of corporations having that, that kind of impact or the limitations as an economist? I mean, we're just st- stuck by the economics. And if something's not economic, it's not going to happen, no matter how much we can talk about cultural, cultural, na- cultural norms or, or, uh, or leadership. It's not going to happen. Exactly. I mean, Walmart is a terrific example. So EDF has an office in Bentonville, Arkansas. There's no reason to be in Bentonville other than it's the headquarters of Walmart. Um, and there's sort of examples of the example where Walmart, as a um, corporation selling uh, more stuff to more people than anyone else on the planet, has enormous influence. So concentrated laundry detergent is a good example of this. Right? So the individual laundry detergent manufacturers have no incentive to concentrate their laundry detergent. Because essentially, the more concentrated, the less shelf space you have, the less attention you get, and the less laundry detergent you sell. So Procter & Gamble, Unilever, right, the individual sellers have no incentive to sell the concentrated detergent. Well, Walmart can go ahead and say, we will only sell concentrated laundry detergent. So Procter & Gamble, Unilever, everyone get in line and sell the concentrated stuff. It's better for the planet. It's better for consumers. It's better for us as Walmart. And by the way, it's better for you as long as everyone else does it too. And of course, when Walmart says to Procter & Gamble, only sell concentrated laundry detergent, there's no reason for Procter & Gamble now to be selling the non-concentrated stuff in the other handful of stores. Um, if the biggest consumer, the biggest um, retailer, um, only sells one type of your product. So Walmart, in this case, took the step, took the initiative, and now all of us everywhere are buying concentrated laundry detergent. Right? Now, there are counterexamples to this too, of course, where even Walmart, like Glenn was saying before, simply doesn't have the influence, where it has to be policy, where it has to be a step above. And of course, oil companies is a pretty good example. Airlines is another one, where the entire business model would have to be turned upside down to take the steps that are necessary, that we know that are necessary, to get to this low-carbon, high-efficiency path that we would all like to get onto. Let's talk about advertising campaigns and whether we've talked a little bit about how corporations can shape behavior. They've been masterful at uh, convincing us that we need as some people say, to buy all sorts of things that we don't need to impress people that we don't like. Uh, so could, <laughs> could that be turned around mm-hmm. to sort of shape uh, positive behavior in a way that uh, you know, having a low energy usage or low carbon footprint would be desirable and sexy and a cool in a way that Jimmy Carter couldn't? So, uh, could not? Um, let me take my pet peeve here. Um, I... Uh, 14 months ago by now, um, the day after Thanksgiving, Patagonia came out with an ad that says, don't buy this jacket. Right? I would say this was the most cynical move of anyone on that particular Friday, right? So there, and again, right? We need all of the above. So we need consumer groups who say, we don't buy anything on Black Friday. Activism from the bottom up. Right? And we need policy and we need, we need everything. But this particular example right, of sort of 
corporate citizenship, and of course it was hailed as corporate citizenship. Well, I actually walked into a Patagonia store in New York on Columbus Avenue the next day. They were sold out of that particular jacket. <laughs> and of course, right, I don't want them to advertise themselves out of business, by the way. They're a great company. They do fantastic things. Right? Now, of course, I'm the target audience, right? I know where Patagonia is. The region, right? I actually, like my wife has three of their jackets. Not just one, three, right? Uh, it's fantastic products. I like the stuff. They do great things. They plant trees every time they, they pollute. They do all the necessary things. I don't want them to advertise themselves out of business. And we shouldn't expect them to advertise themselves out of business. Right? Fiduciary responsibility basically obligates them not to. Well, they're private, so they can do whatever the heck they want. Fair enough. Right? Uh, <laughs> but still, uh, right? it takes policy to make the change. We can't rely on Patagonia to basically get us to buy less stuff. Glenn Lowe? Do it, and then we'll get to... I, I would Chris. love to think that Madison Avenue can convince people to do that. I, I think there is a history. If, if you look at cigarettes, there's a history of people being convinced by major corporations to do things that actually will kill you if you use the product properly. Over time. Two-thirds of Americans drink, even though there's a label right there that says it increases yes. the risk of cancer. <laughs> yes, yes, and 160,000 people die every year in the U.S. from lung cancer, a, a disease that was practically unheard of before Madison Avenue started marketing cigarettes to consumers. But the tricky part here, Greg, is it, it's very hard. And so if you, if you look at two recent examples, Clorox Greenworks, they just had a recent campaign probably a month ago, where they effectively try to get greenies to be not the only people who buy the Greenworks, which is the household cleaning, but to get the other 85% of people who don't buy it. And actually, the the ad mocked the 15% that do buy it, and it, co- it totally backfired on them. The righteous eco-consumers. Okay. Exactly. And the same thing is could be said about Coca-Cola, right? They, they have a fundamental issue, obesity, that they're wrestling with, and they're arguably one of the best brand marketing companies in the world, if you look at the Coca-Cola brand. But their Coming Together campaign, which, again, is just recent, it's a two-minute video that describes how they're part of the solution for obesity in the U.S. But, again, look at the backlash. Look at the YouTube video that mocks the Coming Together commercial, where it really says, well, sugar-sweetened drinks in the U.S. is the number one cause of obesity. Right? You, you have that kind of backlash. And so... It's not so easy to predict. Can can Madison Avenue get it right every time? Unfortunately, not. And it's actually but they got a pretty darn good batting average. Chris Jones. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, there's some wonderful examples of social marketing, marketing of green or of pro environment or pro health um, uh, products. So one of my, my favorite ones I discovered when I was 19, uh, driving through Texas, and uh, I saw these billboards all over the place that said, "Don't mess with Texas." And here I was with my California car driving through Texas, and I thought, oh, no, what is this? You know? <laughs> and it turned out this is one of the most successful um, social marketing campaigns ever, where it was, you probably know, about litter, right? Literally don't mess with Texas. And mm, they were essentially able to eliminate littering uh, in, in Texas. Um, it was 85% or something reduction uh, um, from this uh, campaign, which is actually run by, um, you know, government uh, and so it, because it tapped into the identity of Texans in a really profound way. Uh, and I think we could do something very similar, actually, in Californians by tapping into our identity. Who are we? You know, we are uh, 
health conscious. We're environmentally uh, concerned. We are. We ride our bicycles. We, um, you know, we care about the environment. We're smart. This is who we are. Californians are cool, right? This is who we are. <laughs> so uh, make that part of our identity. And I think there's a lot that we really could do. Um, uh, you know, uh, effectively with social marketing on this issue. Sure, can I? More? So, right I'm here. not worried about Californians. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? Berkeley, Boulder, yeah. Brooklyn, yeah. Boston, they figured it out, mm. right? So there are certain communities where it's cool to drive a Prius, where you sort of stick out if you don't, or where you pay extra to be able to drive a Prius in order to seem like you fit in. Right now, there are also areas in this country where Toyota sells hybrid pickup trucks without putting this, the hybrid label on them. Because they're just fundamentally good, good vehicles, right? So you, people buy them. You just don't want to be seen driving around with something that says hybrid. And certainly not something that looks like a Prius. Right? Now, it's, those are the consumers we need to convince. Those are the people we need to get. Right? So there are sort of, we can name study after study that sort of demonstrates how you can get people in Berkeley to do certain things. Great. Those are not the people we're worried about. But if that's done in a, in a Berkeley kind of righteous, arrogant way, it's going to backfire, Christian. Well, well, it absolutely You're could. from Berkeley, so you speak for Berkeley. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there's a great South Park episode, episode on the Prius, as many of us know. Um, but, you know, uh, any product and any innovation always starts with the early adopters, and California is an early adopter uh, on this issue. Uh, but it has to be, uh, um, you know, absolutely move beyond that. Most Americans, though, do care about climate change. Most Americans are concerned about this fundamentally moral issue that we have done more than our fair share of warming. If everybody lived like the the average American, we'd be at three or four degrees C right now, seven, eight degrees uh, Fahrenheit of warming. That is fundamentally unfair. It's fundamentally a moral issue. It's an issue that people care about. And for those who uh, that is impacts us in a uh, really kind of profound way, um, you can speak to uh, the environmental uh, aspect. For many of the for people, that isn't something that's going to impact them. You need uh, economics and, and um, you know, other forces. Let's hear Glenn and Garnot address whether ultimately the moral dimension is where this needs to go to get people to really move. Glenn Lowe? I mean, does... Well, the, the unfortunate reality is, well, one, I'm an optimist, but, but let me put that aside for a second. The morally over, when people decide what behavior to choose, the I'm destroying the planet feels morally overpowering, right? Can, can you act in terms of that? And, and the issue, even coming back to the full, the beginning of the session when we were talking about plastic bags, if you, if you looked at the San Francisco Chronicle a couple of days ago, the number one article was, the, the plastic bags kill people. <laughs> that, well, well, you should wash your canvas bags. And I told exactly. my wife this morning, you better exactly. wash those things, they're dirty. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so it, the moral argument is necessary, not sufficient. It kind of actually has to be easy. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll just volunteer. So, so we're, we're all for being moral when it's easy. Yes. <laughs> all right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Convenient. Okay. Yep. Can I, right, so, I mean, I can easily afford, right, to go on this eco-vacation check my BlackBerry at the door, and basically live off nature for a couple of weeks right before I return to my nice little cushy office. Um, people who don't have this choice, uh, right, for them, that's, not, that's simply not an option. So 
for example, I just I, I spent a month in Thailand working, not on the beach, um, and uh, a couple of months ago. And basically, the a good example of this, right? Everyone uses CFLs, compact fluorescent light bulbs. Everybody. Now, no one recycles, no one bikes. Bangkok is a polluted, disgusting mess. Right? How do you put the two together? Well, it turns out the state-owned utility in Thailand faced very much the same decisions that utilities faced here in California in the 1970s. Build yet another power plant or get people to use CFLs. Get everyone to use CFLs. Well, and as a result, there are heavy subsidies, public information campaign, and Thais use, as a result, now use CFLs, even though incandescence would still be available in stores. Right? It took Americans, Europeans, it took bans on incandescence to get us to that stage. Whereas there, it was essentially a public information campaign with a hefty dose of subsidies to basically push CFLs out to people. And now everybody uses them. This is sort of the example, well, once again, as the economist, they would say, well, of course, incentives work. Right? There's a reason why no one bikes because it's expensive, quote-unquote. It's dangerous to do in Bangkok. You literally get killed doing it. And there's a reason why no one recycles, and there's also a reason why everybody uses CFLs. Now, putting the two and two together, once again, leaves me with the conclusion that at the end of the day, it's the, in this case, fairly rational incentives that get me to do certain things that are good for the planet, and then not take that as sort of the initial step and say, oh, now I'm using CFLs, let me do all these other things as well, but to basically do what's good for me on the CFL side and to also do what's good for me on the driving side or the flying side or the not recycling side of things. It's the incentives in the end that drive people's behavior. Chris Jones? Well, in part, uh, certainly it, it, we, policy has to be... Absolutely, the thrust of you know national and even state level policy. Absolutely, but um, we know that that uh, uh, people are willing to buy solar, people are willing to drive uh, you know the hybrid cars, people are willing to do so much more. And when and it, when it comes down to the end of the day, we're not always necessarily um, buying what is best for our pocketbook. A lot of other decisions go into factors go into our decision making, but. Are you that, saying solar and hybrids are uneconomic? Well, they have been, but <clears throat> people have been buying them anyway, and many other things. And there are a lot of cheap things, efficiency that we don't do, and they are cheap, you know. So, um, lots of factors go into our decision making. I mean, absolutely, I agree uh, with Garnett that it, you know, we have to have much, much more aggressive policies, and that has to be the thrust of what we do. But behavior is important too; uh, it needs to be part of what we do. And frankly, even the most aggressive policies that we've even conceived of at this point are not going to get us anywhere close to where we need to be. I mean, we need much more aggressive policies than even what we've considered. Absolutely. And, and Glenn Lowe, corporations know that people make emotional decisions more than economic decisions, right? I mean, I'll, I could buy solar, uh, maybe uneconomic, but it feels <laughs> cool. I get some kind of benefit from it. There's a lot of literature on this, right? So in terms of emotion versus uh, rational decision-making. And, and yes, yeah, in fact, what, what the what the latest study says, we, we are both rational beings as well as emotional beings. And the way our brain is wired, you kind of have to balance the two. Um, there's there's a great book, uh, Switch, 
that talks, it's from the Heath brothers, one who's a professor at Stanford, that really talks about how do you get coordinated, long-term, persistent action. And you have to tap into both. You have to have the economic rationale. This is in my best behavior as an economic human being. But also has to resonate with our value systems. right? So coming back to the morality argument, morality in itself isn't enough. But if it does both, if it if it addresses your morality and your values, as well as fits in the pocketbook, there is persistence. And so with a lot of our work that we're doing with corporations, that's exactly where we go. We try and tap into this underlying belief, this value system of corporate executives, and combine it with the business incentives of this is actually good for your business. And, and that's how you create persistence. And that's an interesting word because some people might buy local for a while, but then oh, the other stuff goes on sale or you, know, you might change your habits for a while, but then kind of think it's not having an impact and revert to your old ways. Good on, Wagner. Mm-hmm. I would like nothing more than 50 years from now, us economists are completely unnecessary in this climate debate. Right? So if you look at... Mm-hmm. Child labor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You don't have economists talking about benefits and costs of having 14-year-olds produce products for us. It's simply something we don't do, right? Slavery is another, of course, prominent example of this. We did have economic arguments, right? We had economists with very crude benefit-cost methods way back when essentially argue that, well, there are benefits and there are costs. Let's see how we can do this least intrusively, to convince people to, to go for the policy change. Well, if 50 years from now we are still having debates about the benefits and costs of $20 versus $30 per ton of CO2, we've lost this battle. It has to be a moral issue, eventually. The question is how we get from here to there. Gernot Wagner is the uh, author of But Will the Planet Notice? An Economist at the Environmental Defense Fund. Other guests today at Climate One are Chris Jones from UC Berkeley Energy and Resources Group and Glenn Lowe with Blue Sky Consulting. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to put an audience microphone up here and invite your participation um, <coughs> for a one-part uh, comment or question. You can tell us your uh, carbon reductions, your carbon sins uh, right here. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, while that's going, I'm going to ask each of you to tell us a little bit about um, your own footprint, what you do to reduce it. We've heard Gernot Wagner talk a little bit about uh, his traveling. He hasn't told us yet that uh, he lives in an apartment in New York without air conditioning. I don't know if you got an air conditioner when the baby arrived. Maybe you should, yeah, no? We didn't, know. Well, okay. Um, let's talk about, you talked about your flying. What else, what's the next thing for you to do to reduce your own footprint? Well, so here's the deal, right? The average American emits about 20 tons of CO2. Average European emits about 10. I have a dual citizenship, so I get 30. Um, and that's pretty much where I am, actually. Right? So I'm vegetarian. I don't drive. We carry up 23 months old around everywhere, which I guess you can go to extremes with all of this. We don't have air conditioning. We sort of we try to do all the right things, right? And then you add it all up, and it just doesn't add up to enough, right? I mean, a recent example right now is, so, the Catholic Church, right? If the next Pope decreed every Catholic ought to decrease his or her carbon footprint to zero, zero. Not that that's even possible or desirable for that matter, but it's certainly not possible. But let's just say it happens and a billion Catholics follow the Pope's lead and decrease their carbon footprint to zero. 
It will basically register like Lehman Brothers taking a nosedive. We have a great recession. We have a dip in emissions. Clearly, the planet would notice. But the trend line is still pointing up, and we still haven't solved this problem. So the biggest social movement in history, religion, the biggest church of the biggest social movement in history, the Catholic Church, gets all its billion members to do the right thing and go beyond and get to zero. Right? All vegetarian, none of them drive, none of them fly. And we still haven't done enough. It takes policy. It's not just individual action that has to drive the kind of change that's necessary. Not papal policy. Okay, Glenn Lowe, let, um, <laughs> let's talk about what's the next thing for you to reduce your own footprint? Yeah, well, for the record, <laughs> my water footprint is a quarter of the national average. My trash footprint is it's 3x recycling and compost than it is landfill. Uh, I fly constantly, but I rationalize that because I'm flying out there to convince the world's most powerful executives that they should do more. And so I, I like to think the, the energy balance of my activities, my carbon footprint is actually positive, but uh, th- that's where I'm focused. I spend my entire day doing that. And what, what could you do that you aren't doing? And this is meant to be, you know, so, like, I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll collude myself, yeah. too. I'm not a carbon angel here. But uh, yeah. what's the next thing you could do, you'd like to do? Um, invest consistent with my values. Ah, good one. So mm-hmm. I've, I've yeah. moved a, a significant portion of my net worth, which isn't a lot, but is a little <laughs> part of what I can do to socially responsible investors (coughs) to to actually vote with my dollars in terms of share and stock in a way that I think is consistent. Because ultimately, unless the financial system acknowledges these externalities, which is just a fancy economic term for costs on society that aren't being borne by corporations, unless that gets fixed, all these are patchworks of Band-Aids. And so until we shop smarter, until we invest smarter, the scale change won't actually happen. Chris Jones? Well, well my wife and I are, are about a less than, little less than half of similar households, um, and we do do carbon footprint analysis at, at my, my job. And the, the part that is high is definitely air travel, um, and so you know, we rely on carbon offsets for that. So I, that's about all we can do on that one. But I think what I could do um, more... One more thing I'd like to say on this. I think it is important for all of us who work in this space to lead by example. I mean, that is, I don't think you can really speak from a position of trust if you, you don't do this in your own life. But really, it, it has to be with, I think the next step for me is really influencing more, you know, my peers, my, my, my family. You know, if I could get my brother-in-law to take this seriously, I think maybe I'd be doing really well. <laughs> You've got a challenge. We'll have you back. As uh, some of you know, I have solar and electric car. I also fly discretionary sometimes with my family. And I think similar to Glenn, the next thing for me would be to invest in a way that's consistent with some of the purchasing things. I've Can I ask about. you one yeah. question on this, on, on investing? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, here's the Warren Buffett model of the world, right? Make as much money as you can possibly do and then give it all away. So wouldn't it... But the cons- problem is would, the time, the cycle of that. By the time- oh, absolutely. But so, if we could make more money investing in the green stuff, right? And Al Gore is trying with his generation investment management, and he's doing fairly well. Um, so, if we can do that, absolutely. Now, what what if the alternative was invest not in the dirtiest stuff you can find, but in the most profitable stuff you can find, and then give it all to EDF? <laughs> 
Or Climate One. Yes. Or <laughs> Climate One. Okay. But, but the problem or is the, the best conference. The, the, or the, the Blue Sky. The, the problem <laughs> is the time lag to do that, right? The, the market signals today versus the accumulation of wealth and then distributing it and then having that to have impact. By that time, we've raised the temperature on the globe another couple of degrees. Let's get our audience questions, sir. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Um, now the bags cost me 10 cents at the store, I am a lot more conscientious about bringing my own bag to the store. I'm also aware that if that's the only behavioral change I make, it's not enough. And so I'd like to ask the panel what other uh, policy changes do you see um, needed? Kurnat, you're the policy advocate here. What's, yeah. what's, can, can I ask you back? So mm-hmm. you're not buying the, um, this bag or refusing to buy the bag, bringing your locally sourced organic cotton bag um, to the store. Does it lead you to do more on the policy front or does it lead you to do more in other areas? Or are you sort of saying, well, solve global warming for the day, let me move on and, you know, solve the AIDS crisis? Behavioral changes other than me bringing my bag to the store more conscientiously. I've, you know, advocated for policy changes prior to this 10 cent charge and I don't see that changing. Okay, good. So you're sort of, you're the in between, right? So you're between Chris and me basically. You, you do the right thing in one dimension and it doesn't lead you yet. After today, of course it will, mm-hmm. but it doesn't lead you yet to call for the additional policy change. Um, it doesn't really bite into any other actions either. Correct. So that's presumably not the sweet spot necessarily, right? But presumably, at at the very least, it doesn't do anything in other areas where you now say, oh, I can fly more because I'm getting my back. Correct. Can can I ask another question? Um, So uh, you have your own cloth bag? Oh, yes. Yeah. Actually, it's not a cloth bag. It's a, um, I think it's a nylon bag that fits in my pocket. It's a lot easier to carry. Ah. Oh, and where do you where do you put uh, it in your in your vehicle? I do not have a vehicle. I'm oh. I like one of the panel members. I do not have a driver's license. Wow. Okay then. <laughs> Which you know, of course might be the bigger impact, well, right? Yes. Well, one thing I love about the, these bags is that we leave them in our cars and we take them to our. It's a, it's a sort of constant reminder um, for for most of us who actually have cars. Not like you know, a good example you're setting here. Um, it's, a, it's a reminder to carry this on into other aspects of your life. Good icon. And it's the car. It's the number one in California, by the way. By far, it's the car. Yeah, um, that is the biggest thing we need to uh, reduce as an in- individuals. More than diet. Diet's important. It's, I mean, basically in the U.S., it's, um, it's cars, coal, and cows. Those are the, the, the three in that order. And we don't have coal uh, very much in California, so it's basically cars, and then cows are down here and, and food, um, and home energy is important, but cars by far are the biggest one here. Let's have our next uh, audience question in Climate One. Okay. <clears throat> well, I'd like to see more of an emphasis on sort of the systemic nature of this problem. I think this emphasis on self-action, the narcissistic approach, mm. is going to lead to a dead end because this, this came apart. Let's say the United States got very wealthy off of fossil fuels. Other countries would like to get wealthy to match our standard. Our, even as wealthy as we are, we're very indebted. And if our economy slows down just a little bit, suddenly environmental concern takes a back seat. As we saw after Copenhagen, the big retreat from global warming. Maybe it's more important that we start screaming about the future. Species will go extinct. All the, you know, you know all the consequences. Then should I drive a Prius or should I ride my bike? It's a collective problem and we need a collective solution. Any comments? Glenlow? 
completely agree with you. It, it's been well written that virtually all of the world's most pressing problems require collective action, right? It's, it's simply put as that. And if you look at individual accountability and collective action, you need both. It's an all-of-the-above strategy, absolutely. And there, there's, there's a number of really good signature examples where government consumers or individuals like ourselves, corporations are actually working together to actually produce systemic change. And I, I, could, I could go into examples. I don't, I don't know if we have time, but the, the ability to have coordinated action, simultaneous action around just the right people is key. It's not everyone. It's not, it's not all 7 billion, one day 9 billion acting in concert. It's actually a few thousand. And, and if you pinpoint the problem, pinpoint the solution, and get the right people in the room, <coughs> you can actually change it. So there's a few people who really have their hands that are driving the Earth ship here, and if you get to them, that they could really turn the ship around. That's what you're saying? Get to them so that they could pull the levers of power that, that they hold. Yes, absolutely. Let, let me give a tangible example. Seafood. Seafood is a huge issue because, well, unfortunately, there's not enough seafood to go around. It's a very tangible problem because we all eat seafood, I, I presume most of us. If you got the the handful, it, it's probably in the thousands. I've actually never counted. But if you got the thousands of people who buy the most seafood in the world, if you got the, the NGOs who are focused on sustainable seafood in the room at the same time, if you got the right government policies, whether it's cat shares or other types of programs, you can actually create systemic change because as as – as economists say, it's a it's a commons problem. It's a tragedy of the commons. But what that requires, though, is coordinated action by individuals who shop smarter, don't buy red list food, use your Monterey Bay Sea Watch card. You need merchants who are in the major corporations, whether they're retail or grocery, so restaurants or, or like your local Safeway, buying the right fish, so don't buy Chilean sea bass and put it on the shelf. And you need government action because the, there's a true economic cost to all of the overfishing. It's, it's, it's been proven that the economy would be better off by the billions if we all took coordinated action. And so concentrated industries provide opportunities. Yes. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Interesting you would discuss that. That pertains to what I'm mm. going to tell you. Like, uh, the food industry has done a marvelous job of reminding us of how many calories and what the contents are. Uh, what if we took that a step further and put labels on the carbon footprint that we're creating with the products that we buy? Glenn Lowe, you've been working on that. Yeah, uh, for, for about three years. It, it's a mixed bag, unfortunately. Like Tesco, one of the largest, one of the top three largest grocers in the world, mainly based in the U.K., they, they tried that for quite some time with mixed results. Um, again, it's about behavior change. If you, if you look at people and what incents them to buy one product or another, this what they call front-of-pack labeling, unfortunately, most people who shop, they shop based on cost, quality, efficacy, and, oh, by the way, carbon footprint is somewhere down in the, the, the list. It's usually not the top five. Now, there's emerging science, there's emerging data, there's emerging tools like Good Guy that allow you to shop, barcode scanner and all, scan a UPC code and actually see not just the carbon footprint, but the whole environmental social footprint. You know, some of the data is limited, but Dara O'Rourke and a number of others are really giving easy tools 
I, I can't emphasize it has to be easy because if it's not easy, no, nobody does it. Good Guide, there's an app about more than a million people have downloaded the Good Guide app to make that those kind of quick, simple purchasing decisions, the Good Guide app. Yes, let's, let's have our next question. Hi. Hi. Um, uh, that was mostly answering my question, so I'm going to switch. I have this huge pet peeve that everyone's running to the Arctic to see the glaciers melting. I mean, I, I can't even <laughs> believe my smart friends who care about climate change and the trips. So, so I guess um, the question is with peer-to-peer marketing, or, or you alluded to role modeling, how can we use some of those, and social networking, some of those techniques to change the way people who think it's cool to be environmental are actually maybe doing some of the wrong things. And I think you, I like that idea of the simple, rational way to make decisions. Maybe that's part of my question. Who'd like to feel that one? Good night, Wagner. It, well, so I mean, the honest truth is, right, one person taking a back seat and saying, I won't go on that cool trip to Kilimanjaro or the Arctic or the Antarctic to see the melting glaciers isn't going to make a difference, right? And if you don't go, someone else will or someone else will make the sale, right? You don't go on that flight to London to make the sale, someone else will do it on your behalf. Um, What it takes in this case is once again, right, if everybody incorporates the full cost of flying in their personal mm-hmm. decisions, and has to because it's due to policy change. By the way, the European Union, for example, is taking the lead on this one, including aviation emissions and under its cap-and-trade system. Um, then, by all means, right, go fly, as long as you pay for the damage you cause. And the United States, by the way, is pushing back on the EU uh, effort to... Yeah, you're suing uh, them, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, Glenn Lowe. Let me just add one thing, which is this, this whole point of view, if you get the right people to change behavior, it causes a disproportionate wake. So we, we've taken people, not not to just see glaciers, but other things as well, what we call positive deviance. So corporations or people who are doing things outside of the norm, whose business models replacing the old business model. And so we've taken a, a $100 billion CEO to Africa because we were convinced that if we had him experience sustainability, that it would actually change how he thought. And he did. He, he starts actually stocking products that he wouldn't have stocked before. And so I, I don't want to downplay this experiential part of sustainability because let, let's be honest. Climate change, we're perfectly suited not to do anything to climate change, right? How we're wired. Because climate change is a generational externality. It's a geographic externality and a socioeconomic externality. The feedback loop for us to actually do something is really difficult. And so if you can take someone who matters to actually see and taste and experience sustainability, that can actually have a difference. Running it up on our kids' credit card. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. um, My one question, and then I have a couple comments, um, was directed at Glenn. Who do you think, other than Blue Sky, like your company, um, are the in the best position right now to get to those right people to affect systemic change? I think a lot of um, the well, Environmental Defense Fund is a fantastic organization. There's a number of leading NGOs. I would put Conservation International there as well. Uh, there's a there's a whole emerging 
over the last 10, 20 years, group of NGOs who are really focused on changing business. And I'm convinced that if you can change the purchasing power of those businesses, it changes everything. So I think there's there's NGOs. There's a number of foundations out there as well, local foundations actually, that are really focused on sustainable markets. Can you affect change in a specific market like seafood, like beef, which has a huge signature footprint? And there's a number of corporations out there and organizations out there who are doing it. And the best way to do that is uh, to, to affect individuals when they get, get to the market level. Yeah, yeah, and to your point, Greg, it's, it's a lot about concentration. You, you have to find the, the pinch points, the choke points in the system, and go after those. And we are out of time. You can ask them afterwards uh, if you'd like to. Our thanks to Glenn Lowe, principal at Blue Sky, Chris Jones, co-chair of the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference, and a researcher at the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley, and Granat Wagner with Environmental Defense Fund and author of the book, But Will the Planet Notice? I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Thank you.